Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 247 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Today on the show, we'll be discussing the Sci Fi Channel series Incorporated about a grim future ruled by ruthless corporations. And this will involve spoilers for the entire first season, so just be aware of that. And I'm joined by three guests. So first up, we've got our producer, John Joseph Adams. He's the editor of Lightspeed and Nightmare Magazines, and he also oversees John Joseph Adams' books, an imprint of Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. He's the series editor of The Best American Science Fiction and Fantasy, and he's also edited many other anthologies, including the recent books Loosed Upon the World and What the Bleep Is That? His new anthology, Cosmic Powers, will be out in April. So John, welcome back. Good to be here, as always. I've deprioritized my current assignments, and I've made this panel my primary action item. So <laughs> I'm ready to go. That's good to know. Then next up, we've got Anthony Ha, who you may remember from our panel on Star Trek Beyond back in episode 214, and our panel on Black Mirror Season 3 back in episode 227. He covers media, advertising, and pop culture for the news site TechCrunch, and a chapbook of his short stories called Love Songs for Monsters was published by Youth in Decline in 2014. So, Anthony, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I uh, didn't come up with uh, any good jokes, but I'm happy to be here. (laughs) (laughs) Well, nobody's come up with any good jokes. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, don't worry about it. And also joining us today is Aaron Lindsay, who you may remember from our panel on the TV show Brain Dead back in episode 239. She's the author of the Bloodbound series of epic fantasy novels from Ace Books, as well as the Nicholas Lenoir series of historical paranormal detective novels from Rock, which she writes under the name E.L. Tetensor. She spent over a decade working for the United Nations in dozens of countries around the world, and she also writes the Villain of the Month feature over at Pornokitch.com. Her latest Bloodbound novel, Bloodsworn, is out now. So, Aaron, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Okay, so let's start off with John. So, John, it was your idea to do a panel on this show, Incorporated. So how did you get interested in this show in the first place? Uh, I don't remember when I first uh, heard about it. I, I saw a commercial or something uh, at some point along the way. Uh, probably I was watching Face Off or something like that on Sci-Fi Channel or maybe The Expanse, and I, and I saw a commercial for it. Um, and I thought it looked really interesting. Um, and, uh, I mean, I saw, like, Matt Damon and I think Ben Affleck also are both, like, producers on it. And so, um, and, of course, I mean, I love dystopian fiction, and, and this this is, you know, squarely in that realm so um yeah i mean i I hadn't really heard too much about it um so and unfortunately even after it aired i didn't hear too much about it uh so but but i mean it's yeah it's uh it it kind of came out of nowhere as being something that i really really liked but um unfortunately uh because no one was really talking about it i didn't like watch it right away so like i had recorded the whole first season and so we only are you know watching it after the fact and Alas, too late. Yeah, so this is another show in a whole string of them that got canceled in between the time that we you know, made plans to cover it and are actually recording our panel, um, which yeah, is too bad. So John liked this show a lot. And how about Anthony? What did you, you think of this show? Yeah, I, I thought it was uh, really, really good. I, I had no idea that it existed. I think I'd probably seen some ads on the subway or something, but really had no idea that it existed un- until um, you know we, we started talking about doing this episode. And... I, you know, I, I burned through it like super quickly. I mean, I think at first I, I was just kind of like, oh, I need to watch, get through it before we do this recording. But like, you know, I got hooked fairly quickly in it and just sort of finished the whole second half of the season in, in like a single binge. 
Yeah, I'll say that, I mean, because of the schedule for this show, I end up having to watch a lot of shows in a day or two, which isn't always <laughs> the most enjoyable thing to do. Um, <laughs> but this one, I was actually ahead of schedule. And so I, but I still ended up watching it in a day or two, just, be, but it was because I wanted to, not because I had to. <laughs> so I'll have some like criticisms to say of this show, but I want to make that, put that out there right away that I did, you know, I watched each episode because I was anxious to get to the next one. And I just, you know, just blew through the whole thing. Uh, yeah, some of the some some of the some of the episode enders are like really really like great like just like just hooked you so much like you know you can't can't wait to watch the next one. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I had those moments where you sort of like you're like okay, I'm gonna go to bed, and then they do the <laughs> cliffhanger, and you sort of sigh, and you're like, oh, I guess I'm watching one more. <laughs> uh, well, so how about Aaron? What did, what did you think of this show overall? Yeah, overall, I, I really liked it. And to be honest with you, um, when when you first mentioned the show to me, I was curious about it because um, I sort of have a I'm interested in the overall concept of of governance by corporation. Um, but when I saw that you know that it was really a, a futuristic dystopian sort of thing, I was a little bit hesitant because I don't typically I, I'm not in that frame of mind right now where where dystopia <laughs> appeals to me so much um, but i really i really did enjoy it and and i do agree i thought it was a very strong pilot um as pilots go and i thought it was very taut suspenseful plotting um and they did a good job and overall i was engaged um like you i have i have some criticisms but a lot of it also as an aid worker really resonated mm. i thought they did a great job on some of those details well, right. So let's talk about that. And let's just explain the premise a little bit more for people who haven't seen the show, which is probably a lot of people, right? Um, <laughs> it's everyone. <laughs> <laughs> Including everyone on this panel. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. So it's um, in the year 2074 or something like that. And the Earth has been severely impacted by global warming. And so the coastal cities have all been flooded and pretty much are gone. And uh, people have moved inland. And so the TV show is set in Milwaukee, which is now has a climate similar to like uh, present day Mexico or something like that. And um, most people live in slums called the Red Zone, where there is little or no government in effect. And um, if you're lucky, you work for one of these powerful corporations inside the Green Zone, which are like these gated communities which are very, very, it's like Bel Air or something. It's very, very fancy. Um, but the drawback to working for one of these big corporations is that they're very, very cutthroat and they have HR departments that torture you if they uh, suspect you of uh, selling corporate secrets or anything like that. And so our main character has uh, is a, a climate refugee from the Red Zone who has taken on a fake identity and uh, insinuated himself into the green zone in an attempt to rescue a woman he's in love with, who he's known for years, who has become a sort of corporate prostitute in a corporate pleasure colony called Arcadia. Um, I don't know. Am I missing any any big significant details there that people should know? Uh, well, and, and the protagonist, uh, Ben, he, uh, he also marries the daughter of the head of the corporation he works for as part of his, uh, you know, insidious scheme to, uh, you know, upend the system and, and, you know, uh, yeah, I mean, his, his scheme is actually pretty convoluted, so I don't know how much into it we want to go into, but, um, 
but you know, uh, so there's a lot of, because of things like that, there's a lot of like these, uh, morally gray or else just flat out like wrong things that the characters have to do, even the ones that we're rooting for. Um, you know, like, I mean, he does a lot of things that are terrible. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet, and yet it's portrayed in such a way that it's like, well, we can kind of understand why he's doing the things he's doing, even if it is terrible, even if he, even if he acknowledges himself that it's terrible. I think too, one of the, one of the things to mention that's for me a really central part of it is that, um, evil corporations, ruthless corporations, but, but crucially, they assume a lot of the traditional functions of the state. Mm-hmm. So they, they actually have a, a security force. They actually have a governance mechanism and they are in a sense the, their own states. And it reminded me a little bit of the way, for example, the East India company functioned. Mm-hmm. Um, in times of your in the colonies. Um, and I, I, that's what really drew me to the concept because in, in certain places, I think we are headed in that direction or are giving hints of that direction. Um, and, and, and that was a particularly intriguing aspect to me. Well, I mean, Aaron, in your email, you, you know, John mentioned that, um, Ben Affleck and Matt Damon are producers on this show. And you said yeah. that you could, you felt like you could see some of Matt Damon's. Mm-hmm fingerprints on it. Could you talk about that? Yeah, well, I mean, I'm making an assumption here. I did a little bit of light research, and I wasn't able to really determine who, you know, what was the creative team behind this. Um, but I, I I, think you can see some of Matt Damon's fingerprints for sure. Matt Damon um, does a lot of not-for-profit work, um, particularly focused on his water.org. And so he spent a lot of time, um, with, with the UN and with NGOs out in the field. And so he's seen some of these places that, um, that not a lot of people get to see. And so I think in the first instance, the, um, the sort of overall concept of this climate change ravaged world and the really, the, the very strong focus on a Monsanto like, corporation taking over and how precious certain resources are. I think that's an issue that's very close to his heart. But I also suspect if it didn't come from Matt Damon himself, they had people uh, as creative consultants on that team who have spent time in some of the places that, that I've spent time in that I think a lot of people don't. Um, and, and there were a lot of aspects of this show that really surprised me as being I think I mentioned on the on the last panel that we did that I had never seen um, any depiction of the United Nations in fiction, whether on screen or in a book that really tr- struck me as terribly accurate. Um, and the UN, is, of course, does not feature in this, but that this was a more realistic portrayal in a certain way of, of failed states than than I can recall in a speculative fiction piece. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I was going to say, uh, uh, one of the, one of the things that, uh, I was sort of thinking about in terms of like trying to have to describe the show to people who haven't seen it, um, which it may not be entirely helpful because I'm going to reference some books, which maybe people haven't <laughs> read, but it's kind of like Market Forces by Richard Morgan, plus The Wind Up Girl by Paolo Bacigalupi, plus the movie Gattaca, plus the movie Total Recall, plus some cyberpunk thing. I'm not sure which one, <laughs> um, you know, but if you mash up all those things together, that's kind of what this is. I mean, I'm a, I'm a little sad that it doesn't have the gladiatorial car duels that Market Forces has, but otherwise it's, it's very, very familiar, uh, very similar to uh, Market Forces uh, in a lot of ways. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I really, I really wanted to know if Paolo Bacigalupi had actually seen this show because, um, uh, I, I, you know, because it just reminded me so much of his of his work with with all of the, I mean, with because with Spiga basically being Monsanto and uh, you know destroying the world. <laughs> so 
Yeah, I was basically describing it as Gattaca meets Elysium, the Neil Blomkamp oh. movie. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's maybe one of the big liabilities of this show is to me how much it reminds me of things I've seen before. Right. Um, I don't know. Anthony, what do you think about that? Do you think that this show suffers from being over familiar in some ways? Yeah, absolutely. I think there are a lot of different elements in it that, that you can kind of point to and say, you know, okay, like this, none of it, none of it feels like it sort of comes from a whole cloth. Um, but I think that what was there felt a executed really well or with maybe some other caveats we can get into. But, um, I think overall, like the execution was just really strong. And then I think that, um, there are enough like little details in like both just like the design, like, like for example, the idea of, you know, that you take your phone call like in the palm of your hand. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not like this radically, you know, like, oh my God idea, but the way they executed it, it felt very natural and you could imagine interacting with, you know, your phone and with other people that way. And so there are a lot of little things. And then I, I think that the, just there was this sense of anger, which I think certainly is, um, in, you know, Gattaca, um, and, you know, is, is absolutely in the work in, in the wind up girl. And I think just that, the, the, the stuff that it felt like it came from like a real place, even if it was familiar, but it felt like it still had some teeth to it. And so I could recognize the familiarity, but it didn't bother me maybe as much as I would have thought. I was just going to say that it didn't, the familiarity didn't bother me. I'm one of these people who, um, generally, I don't object to tropes as long as they're done well and they're, and they're done in a fresh way. And I think for the most part, with the exception of the rather clunky total recall moment toward the <laughs> end, um, that, that resemblance didn't pull me out of the story. Um, I think that the main flaw for me in the plotting was that in a lot of ways, I felt that the side plots were, with one glaring exception, a lot more interesting than the main plot. Um, so, so all of the little diversions that um that that suck Ben in all of the smaller problems he has to solve were were interesting. I thought Laura's storyline was really interesting. I thought um the head of security's storyline was interesting. I did not like Theo's storyline for reasons we can talk about. Um but but that was me, what I, I assumed you meant when you said there was one glaring exception. <laughs> yeah. It's a glaring exception. I have a lot of issues with it. But um but that central that central conflict uh, of rescuing the the woman who's been forced into prostitution, first of all, it, I I didn't buy it, and mm-hmm. I think that was a big part of the problem. But also, it just wasn't very imaginative. Yeah, it's also kind of like one of those Gilligan's Island problems, right? Where it's like, okay, well, if he's, I mean, you know, he's not going to succeed at doing that because that's the entire premise of the show. Yeah, and so uh, you sort of get into that that issue where or or like maybe maybe more contemporary reference of uh you know like the voyager problem where it's like you know okay well on voyager you know they couldn't ever get back to the alpha quadrant because you know then the show would be over um (laughs) so you know it's like it's that kind of thing where um that that was a bit of a problem with the main storyline for sure um as far as the as far as the tropes though i was going to say it's like I, i had a kind of a funny thought where it's like okay well like you know you notice as you're watching it all of these different tropes that show up and it's like oh well that's for that's like that thing from this movie and that's like this thing from this other thing and uh so i i kind of <laughs> i kind of wondered if like uh uh just one of the creators was like hey i know let's come up with a show and we'll incorporate all of these elements <laughs> from all of these other things that we love and we'll Red make it into one show <laughs> <laughs> I, let me say, I mean, I totally agree with you, Aaron, that the the plot of rescuing the woman felt very trite and 
not worthy to me of how well done the world building in this show is. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I could go on and on about how well the world building is done in this show. I mean, it's it's I think got better world building than just about any other science mm-hmm. fiction show on TV that I can think of. Mm. Um, which is perhaps why sorry to cut you off but just to say perhaps why the elements that did fall flat were so noticeable mm-hmm. right but let me just i mean but they're like like they like things they there there were things they did surprisingly well even within the things that i didn't particularly care for so like the reason that they have this um pleasure corporate pleasure colony in most um shows like this i feel like would not ever have any explanation beyond their evil they're an evil corporation and this is an evil thing that they're doing mm-hmm. but in this show there's the explanation that well they're tired of their people getting kidnapped in the red zone um, right. seeking these pleasures and so they decided out of hell with it let's just make our own place <laughs> so at least they won't get kidnapped when they go there it was just like little stuff little things like that i thought were really surprisingly well done in this show and lifted straight out of the real world Mm. So, I mean, one of the things that that really resonated with me is it reminded me a little of of green zone living, and it is called green zone living in places like Baghdad and Kabul and and even in Islamabad. And when I was in Islamabad, you would go into the green zone, and that that was the diplomatic quarter where all the embassies were and a lot of the international organizations. Um, the security protocols to get in are astonishing, and once you get in, um. Most embassies and even some of the bigger international organizations, and this is true in most conflict zones, they do have um, recreation facilities, for lack of a better word, but I'm not just talking about a gym and a pool. They have a restaurant, they have a club, and this is where everyone goes to hang out. And you have these incredibly important people, ambassadors, generals, um, and by the way, important people, not just foreigners, but also from from the local country and 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 sometimes engaged in some not very laudable behavior. So, I mean, that that concept of having this retreat and precisely because you don't want your people going out into the red zone because it's a security risk, um, but also you need them to blow off steam because they burn out so fast, that's lifted straight out of failed state living. Okay, so Anthony, so... Do you, you agree, right, that the, the world-building stuff is really well done here? Is there any other kind of technical details that stand out in your mind? I'm trying, I was trying to remember what else, because um, it, it really did, I agree that it's just like everything when you started to have questions, it would usually they would sort of anticipate it. Um, I will say that one thing that was maybe less, um, that, was, that I just really enjoyed, even if I didn't necessarily find it as quite as like um, tied to real world stuff was like just the... Um, the cartoon, the Inazaki cartoon, <laughs> where they show like how they indoctrinate the children, which I mean, I think again that idea is not like totally new, but they execute the, the cartoon. You're just like, oh, this is like a really fun cartoon and like a really great way to start an episode. So I thought like it was just really full of stuff like that. Yeah. So for people who haven't seen the show, it's basically like McGruff the crime dog um, <laughs> telling kids to uh, inform on their parents if they're yeah. uh, doing anything that the corporation would find suspect. So yeah, that Which was is, yeah, just this amazing just juxtaposition of just how do you take this thing that's completely horrible and unpalatable and then present it in this sort of friendly way and and it, it's just yeah, it's just done and it's both like really funny and really horrifying. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I was going to say with the world building, I mean, I, I agree, Dave, that it's like, I mean, and compared to any other science fiction show, like, it, it's really hard to think of anything that has world building that's nearly as robust. And I mean, most shows don't come anywhere near the world building sophistication of, of, of a science fiction novel, but this one really does. Like, it really, it, it, it's almost surprising to me that it's not based on a novel, uh, because you, you really see that level of detail that goes into a show like this. Um, 
But, uh, but yeah, I mean, like, all the, all the technological stuff was really great, too. I mean, like, in terms of, like, I mean, like, I also love the phone thing. That was, just, like, such an elegant, uh, like, futuristic version of what we have now. Um, but then also just, like, the, the cyberpunk stuff, like, when, um, when Ben is still Aaron and he's in the red zone and he's, like, hacking together, like, schemes and everything. Like, he, you know, it's, like, all of that stuff, like, worked really well. Like, I mean, uh, I mean, there's a little bit of hand waving going on there, but I mean, it's, like, the what we're watching visually on screen like works it makes sense to me it's not like it's not like i have to like kind of like uh squint and like yeah okay whatever you know it's like it works pretty well and this is one of the things that that appealed to me so much um as dave knows i'm not always a huge fan of science fiction and one of the reasons i'm painting in extremely broad strokes here but one of the reasons is that sometimes the world building details can get in the way and i find that um, that there, there can be a lot of hand waving, but sometimes the, the more speculative it is, the more it loses me. And what was really tremendous for this one was that there, there were moments of, of, of great imagination, but actually most of the details aren't leaps. They are taken straight from the real world. And they're not necessarily taken from a real world, world that everyone recognizes. And that's what makes it edgy and interesting. But even something like, um, again, as we've already said, the, the looking at the phone in the palm of the hand, that's a leap, but it's not a huge leap. Um, and, and that's kind of what makes it feel real. Even little tiny things, like I kept admiring the fashion, um, specifically the, the little tie pins and everything, that it, it was close enough that you could uh, recognize it, but, but different enough that it felt like you were in a different place. Um, yeah, just stuff like that. But but a couple of little ones that I just wanted to mention because I thought they were just amazing. The scene where um, where he gets on the back of the motorbike to go up the stairs in the red zone. Mm-hmm. Oh, so yeah. I think he's visiting Theo. Um, I yeah. can't remember who's... Yeah, and he goes into this sort of derelict apartment building and he has to get on uh, the, the back of this motorbike to ride up the stairs because Theo presumably lives on a high floor. I started laughing because it reminded me so much of this. I went to visit an apartment building in Kinshasa, in, in the Democratic Republic of Congo, and it was completely, um, the jungle wanted it back, and it just was pretty derelict. And they had an elevator, but it didn't work. So what you had to do is you had to go inside and shout your floor. So you'd go, <laughs> Dizuit, and then somebody, and there was a big rock, like literally a big piece of concrete sitting in the middle of it to act as a weight. And there was some poor schmuck pulling on the cords. <laughs> So they would actually physically pull you up the elevator. And if you wanted to get in the elevator, there was no door. You would just stick your head in the elevator shaft and yell the floor you were on and it would come and get you. And and so that was just a little thing that I that I thought was completely amazing. I also really liked, um, I, I mean, as an aid worker, Laura's storyline really, um, the, the more she tries to help sometimes, the more she screws it up. Because she's naive and she doesn't know what she's doing. And so she ends up putting people at risk. Like that scene where she causes a riot. Yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. I totally knew that riot was coming. <laughs> um, because I've made a similar mistake and I've seen people make similar mistakes. And everybody, when they start out trying to, when, when there's somebody who's got no experience of that kind of world and they try to help out, they oftentimes end up screwing up badly. And the more, the deeper you get into it, the more, horrible ethical dilemmas get put in front of you like what happens to her with the guy with the growth inhibiting implant mm. mm-hmm. anyway just, so uh, sorry well yeah let's let's just say for people who haven't seen the show is that basically she um finds out that her housekeeper's apartment mate's uh son i think 
um, has probably uh, appendicitis. And Laura, this is Ben's wife, the main character's wife, is a doctor. And so she says, well, just bring the character into the, this kid into the green zone and I'll treat it. And I'll, and I'll treat the, you know, appendicitis. And then word of this gets around and all sorts of people show up at the gate hoping that she'll treat them as well. And, and a riot ensues. So, yeah. And, and I, I just thought that was, like you say, just a, such a great dramatic mm-hmm. moment. Well, and that's a recurring theme in her storyline of people, you know, saying to her, like, you are just doing this to, like, make yourself feel better, but you have no idea, um, you know, what you're actually doing. You don't, and, and so, like, she really has to, throughout the course of the season, like, earn that idea that she's actually, in some ways, you know, helping people. Yeah, and that she's not just a tourist. Yeah, and actually, you know, I was really glad to see that her storyline sort of unfolded the way it did, where, like, when we first meet her, she's having these flashbacks to uh, this traumatic experience she had where she had been kidnapped, you know, as as Dave mentioned earlier, how uh, the executives would get kidnapped, and that would also happen to their loved ones and stuff in order to, uh, for extortion purposes, and so... Um, so she was having these flashbacks to this time when she had been kidnapped. And um, I was really glad to see that when, as it unfolds, we realized that uh, it doesn't play out like in the sort of stereotypical sort of awful way that you would expect. Like, you know, like you might you might expect that they would have thrown rape in there or or that, um, you know, that that she had to get rescued entirely by other people. And and so, like, I thought like they did a really good job of of putting that uh like dis- displaying that in in a, in a believable light, but not in the same way that we're used to seeing it over and over. Um, and you know, she she's able to you know partially rescue herself, and uh, and the people are clearly doing it just to get the money, and it's not like any kind of you know like awful sex thing or anything. And so um, I really appreciated the way they did that because it's like when it when it was first presented, I was kind of like leery about it, like how it was going to play out, but um, I thought they did it well. Let me just say about that too, John, is that I really appreciated how the corporate ethics or lack thereof was that the their primary concern is protecting their corporate, mm-hmm. uh, you know, their pr- proprietary secrets. And so, you know, if, if they have to make a choice between killing her or risking her getting away with their secrets, they're going to kill her. Right. And it was just like things like that I, 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 I thought was really the, the aspect of the show I found the most interesting. Right. Or, or like when they, um, when they were trying to kidnap that scientist in that, in that base in, in oh, the Arctic yeah. or whatever. And like, That's that was harsh. insane. That was so, that was so great though. That was like so believable as like an evil corporation move, you know, to like just like when they realize that they're not going to be able to kidnap the scientist and it's going to fall back into the hands of their enemies, just nuke the base, you know, like destroy the base and the scientist and all of the research and everything. Even if it means that, you know, millions of people are going to starve to death now because of that because of that research is no longer there. Uh, yeah, no, this seems like a totally believable thing for an evil corporation to do. I guess there's one thing I wanted to say about the world building overall is because we were talking about it, you know, being so much better than a lot of the TV we've seen is I feel like even something like Gattaca or a lot of episodes of Black Mirror, which I like a lot, they tend to be driven by sort of like one idea. And that sort of mm-hmm. is where all the sort of world building comes from. And obviously there is this idea of sort of climate change and sort of intense social stratification, but it, it feels like there's a vision, but like also they're willing to just kind of like, oh, wouldn't it, and then this would go in this direction and this would go in this direction. And it's not just all sort of subservient to sort of like this one um, sort of overarching thing that sort of drives everything because that's not, you know, how the future works. Hmm. And there are de- details about that that I think didn't work as well. Um, I loved the little things like uh, the, how excited everyone is to eat real bacon <laughs> or to get a real steak. I loved the, or the fact that the champagne comes from Norway. 
um, these, you know, these, these little details rolled in. I thought it was clunkiest. Um, I mean, there were moments when it was a bit preachy. And I also, I would be curious to see if other people found the term climate refugees plausible. Everybody kept referring to themselves as climate refugees. And I personally have yet to come across a refugee who like qualifies what kind of refugee they are. Um, and it just, for some reason, that really stuck in my craw as being kind of preachy. Mm-hmm. Were, were there moments that, was that just me, that were there moments where people felt like it was a little bit on the in, intrusive side? Well, let me say, Aaron, I, I mean, I, I really um, I really liked this moment, but I didn't find it plausible where Elizabeth, who is Ben's mother-in-law, she says, this is just the tip of the iceberg. And then she stops to explain what an iceberg is, because presumably <laughs> nobody that. knows anymore, which I thought was really, I, I kind of, I thought that was pretty clever, but this is nowhere near far enough in the future for people to not know what icebergs are, mm-hmm. right? But I thought well, that would have been yeah. really good if, you know, like, Somebody used that expression around a kid, and then the kid says, what's an iceberg? And they're like, well, well, you know, there used to be these big punks of ice floating in the ocean, but they don't exist anymore, you know? Um, yeah. And you've just put your finger on what I think one of the central things that bugged me is that I think the vision of the future is very plausible, but I think there's a disconnect between how far in the future it's meant to be mm-hmm. and the the social ramifications that they're portraying. I think that um, particularly with regard to the stigma toward people who are fugies or skints or whatever term they, they use to talk about people who are um, from the red zone, if most people in their 20s, which most of the main characters are, are old enough to remember from their own childhoods the time before all of these disasters, I personally don't think that level of stigma and discrimination would have settled to the degree that they're portraying in this. I think that would take a couple of generations. Mm -hmm. And I found that kind of a little bit implausible. It bothered me a little. I I agree. Although I just as a point of, I think um, that the the characters who are in their twenties, I thought they they would sort of implied that they really only knew this sort of, you know, um, like ruined world. And and that part of like the speech that, that the main character's dad gives to him is saying like, oh, you don't remember what it was like before, but let me tell you. Um, so I, I got a sense more that like that generation um, sort of didn't didn't know what had ha- what had come before, H- hadn't experienced it at least. Yeah, I guess it's not it's not that clear. I mean, I, I remember the scene you're talking about, and I guess the kid he was talking to is about eleven or twelve. Is that is that about right? Yeah. So it's not it's not yeah. all that clear. Was he born in the refugee camp, or was he just too young to remember? But yeah, I mean, I take the point. But even so, I do think that, yeah, it would take a little bit longer for that sort of... And and, and curiously, they were still running around with the same money. Oh, man, I forgot to notice that. Else, did anyone else find that weird? Like, how is there a euro? Is there still a European Union? <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm, I totally missed that. Let me say, though, about the flashbacks, because I thought that the flashbacks were one of the weaker parts of the show for me, because... <laughs> I feel like I was kind of comparing this to Lost, like the first season of Lost, which I thought was really good, where, you know, half of it is set in the present and then half on the island and then half is set in the past before they got to the island. But the stuff that but those are both equally interesting, whereas I felt like all the stuff in the flashbacks here um, sort of filled in puzzle pieces that we didn't necessarily know. But they were basically what you would have kind of expected them to be right. Nothing, mm-hmm. nothing in the flashbacks was really particularly to me surprising or dramatic or, mm-hmm. or interesting. It kind of reminded me of Arrow where all the flashback scenes are like, Oh, get on with it. 
Uh, I, I was going to say, I, I think like maybe the, a lot of the flashbacks were kind of intended to be like sort of exposition, uh, scenes, like just to sort of help fill out the world building and everything to, you know, and it's like, yeah, they want to give us a little information about what happened in the characters past and everything as well. But I, I, I think it's like they're more of, um, maybe more of an afterthought, right? Like, it's like they weren't as interested in telling those stories as they were about telling the main story and, and everything was just in support of the main story and it, and it kind of shows. Mm. Yeah, I, I mean, I liked the texture of the flash. I mean, just because, of the, especially when you got really, when it was really heavy on Ben's story and you're super into the corporate world, it was just nice to have, to sort of see, you know, something outside of that. But I agree that the plotting of that could often be very kind of clumsy. Like, like when he, when Aaron first finds Elena and then within, you know, 10 minutes, they're like, he's going to her school and he sees her collapse and like, it, mm-hmm. it seems all very convenient. Yeah, I think the thing is that when they decided that the overarching plot was going to be about him saving Elena, then they have to make you care about their relationship. And so Mm -hmm. then they have to have tons of flashbacks to try to establish their relationship, which you're not going to see otherwise because they're, you know, they're separated in the present. But it just it just never really caught fire for me. It's a smart I mean, I I think you're exactly right about why they needed to do that. And it's a smart um, solution or maybe it's the only solution. But unfortunately, I think, and again, this is maybe what makes me think of of Arrow, I like flashbacks when they're in the small moments, which is how most of us experience flashbacks in real life. Do you know what I mean? The the flashbacks seem very plot driven. You move Mm -hmm. from from one moment to the next that sort of um, drives forward a narrative that you don't necessarily need. But it doesn't really build the relationship. It's not the sort of the quiet moments that are revealing about the characters in question. And and those kinds of flashbacks for me, I think, are, are more interesting and work better and are less intrusive. Mm-hmm. Right. It feels much more like we're just trying to hit all the high points, basically, which <laughs> then makes it doesn't doesn't feel real. Because it doesn't serve the purpose anymore. Well, I mean, Aaron, you mentioned the Theo subplot didn't really work for you. Totally agree. Do you want to say a bit more about that? Yeah, I mean, there are a few things about it that didn't work for me. But I think the central thing I, I appreciated, and maybe this is, again, something they were trying to achieve with the flashbacks. Um, I appreciated that we did get scenes in the red zone and scenes of, quote unquote, ordinary life in the red zone, except why did our one window being Theo onto ordinary life in the red zone have to be this very cliche plot of him being mm. a cage fighter? I would have really liked to see a plot from someone in the red zone. And I recognize it's a little bit difficult to work into the narrative, but and make it engaging, but a, a plot of someone in the red zone that didn't revolve around violence and drugs and warlordism and all this kind of stuff, because that's just, I mean, even in the worst war zones for the, for the majority of people, they're just cracking on. And, and even in these violent places, these things are happening in the periphery. And I would have liked to see just a little bit more, of like maybe even more of the woman who works for Laura, mm-hmm. more of sort of people cracking on uh, with, with their everyday lives, because some of the things that they got right, like, for example, the tremendous entrepreneurial spirit of finding ways to 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 rip off the, the currency exchange or the guy with the weather thing. Um, you know, people just trying to get by. And I like those little aspects of it. But yeah, the, the Theo plot just seems so random and so detached from the rest of it. Um, and yeah, just quite cliche to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you could basically excise that plot and the, and the show would still work fine. Make, yeah, exactly. No difference to the overall show. 
Yeah, I mean, I assume that we would have learned eventually how that was going to tie in, like why they were showing us all of that. I mean, obviously, it's uh, he's Elena's brother, so we know that he's uh, and, and you know he's and he's longtime friends with Aaron and all that. But it's like we uh, we we know that there's those connections there. But yeah, just like the but his actual storyline doesn't. We don't really figure out like why are they telling us all this. But yeah, I agree that would be much more interesting if we had uh, been able to see other aspects, like uh, like when they were doing all the scheming and stuff in the in the um, flashbacks, like with Aaron like scheming the. The, the currency exchange and all that, like you said, like, yeah, I would have much rather seen a lot of stuff like that. Cause like that kind of ingenuity, ingenuity on display uh, was uh, really cool to watch. And that's how you have to get by in places like that. And I just feel like just thinking about it from a writer's perspective, I think they, they needed to give, they needed Theo there. They needed a solid red zone character, but they didn't bring a lot of imagination to what would be the storyline, an engaging storyline for this Red Zone character. They gave him a stake by making him uh, the brother of Elena, who is a central feature. But they they just kind of phoned it in for me in terms of coming up with, okay, now we need a reason for this character to exist. And here it is, Cage Fighter. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think, um, you know... Once you said, uh, you, once you mentioned the woman that worked for, uh, for Laura that who ended up working with her at the clinic, it's like, that kind of made me think, like, actually, Theo's storyline would have made more narrative sense if, if it had dove-lined with Laura's at some point. Like, once she ended up back in the red, once she ended up in the red zone and setting up her clinic, like, if his storyline had taken him to a point where they could have intersected at that point, like, that would have made more sense because then there also would have been conflict between Theo and Laura then um, having an opposing goal to Ben's ultimate goal, which is also a shared goal with Theo, which is rec- rescuing his sister. So it's like it would have c- created more complications for for the overall narrative that I think might have been interesting. Hmm. All right, well, so speaking of subplots that were a little iffy on, I, I really had some logical problems. Okay, so there's this character, Roger Kaplan, who's the sort of like scheming co-worker of Ben, who's mm. and they're angling for the same job. And so early on in the show, Roger basically catches Ben dead to rights with some illicit technology. And rather than turning it over to Julian, the security guy, he tries to dig into um, Ben's secret past and this didn't make any sense to me because all he needs to do is, is hand this thing over to security and he gets everything he wants, which is um, Aaron slash Ben out of the way so he can get his promotion. So I think they needed that needed some massaging somehow that maybe this guy, um, Roger, can't advance up the corporate ladder somehow without mm-hmm. um, Ben's help. So he needs to be blackmailing him to get his promotions because if he's just an obstacle standing in his way, it doesn't make any sense why he doesn't just get rid of him in episode two. Mm-hmm. And also, what was the point of the of the brain damaged brother? I kept oh, yeah. wondering was that going to come back into it at some mm-hmm. point in the future? Because otherwise, that just seemed like one of those moments. And I and I catch them sometimes in in shows. I'm sure we all do, where you catch yourself wondering, um, did they just totally make a left turn and say, you know, what? <laughs> uh, let's just forget about that? Just yeah. Know. What, right, what but we shot it, so we're going to keep it in there. I mean, or 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 how far in advance do they write these things? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I don't know. I mean, Deadwood was written on the fly, right? So maybe this was written <laughs> right. on the fly. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, once Ro- once Roger dies, it's like, yeah, what does that guy have to do with anything? Yeah. <laughs> well, well, let's let's explain too for for listeners that so um so Roger has this brother who was given some sort of treatment that was supposed to make him give him extraordinary mental powers or, you know, like, um, 
reasoning skills and stuff to make him an awesome businessman. And it's resulted in him, um, you know, having very poor social skills and sort of social awareness. Um, I actually kind of liked, I mean, I, I feel like that scene was just trying to give Roger some sort of characterization. I actually didn't mind mm-hmm. it too much, but I, I agree that it never I didn't went, mind went anywhere. It. it. It just didn't seem to bloom. Uh, and, yeah. I, and I do wonder whether they had other intentions for it because, I mean, it did add a little bit of depth to Roger, but it was depth that was not explored in, from any other angle. And so it, it was pretty ineffective if that was the overall goal. Um, but I did wonder because they sort of made a point of the fact that both of the brothers really strongly dislike their father and that the brother, the older brother with the brain damage, uh, the only thing that convinces him to acquiesce to Roger's plan is that he feels Roger convinces him that this will help them collectively get revenge on the father. And I just kind of wonder whether the intention was to bring that back somehow, because it just felt too much like, uh, what, what do you call it when you wander off the path? Anyways, wandering off the path. <laughs> you, I'm a really good writer, you guys. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, just one of those byways that's not explored at all. And I, mm-hmm. that's what makes me, makes me wonder. Uh, see, Anthony, do you have any other uh, criticisms of the show? Um, I, I would say that I, I thought the, the final episode, because um, we were talking earlier about sort of like the Gilligan's Island thing of, okay, well, we know that he's not going to get away with her. Um, I mean, I did actually like some ways they handled that where, where she then, you know, was like sort of able to say to him, like, you don't know me. Like, why, what is this like crazy plan that you have that, you know, obviously I wasn't consulting it at all. Um, I like that aspect of it, but it felt very, very manufactured to me then that like he had his sort of old... Um, you know, his old mentor, he ended up sort of sending, taking those spots instead um, in, in this ultimate sort of escape. Um, I mean, now we're really getting into things that are probably incomprehensible to people who haven't seen the show, but that, you know, this character's daughter finds this device and then takes it into school. And so now that suddenly he's, he needs to be on the run. And it just felt like this very manufactured crisis. Um, and that really, I think, uh, like, you know, sort of took some of the air out of that final scene, even if I thought it was a good character moment where he like, is able to say, okay, actually, my uh, my goal isn't you know the only thing that I should care about. No, I I totally agree that the way in w- so what so what happens in the last episode, like spoiler warning again, is that um, Ben's mentor has a daughter who finds his bizarre like safe under his bed that pricks her finger and identifies that she has familial DNA and has this piece of junk that. Uh, he has been keeping, I think, just for sentimental reasons for the refugee camp. And like McGruff, the crime dog, says, informs on her teacher <laughs> and all hell breaks loose. And I, I, I had a huge problems with that as well. I mean, I, I think like my rewrite, my quick rewrite, which would make a lot more sense for that, is that under his bed, he has like his stash of like cash and a gun and IDs for the red zone and stuff in case he ever needs to disappear in the middle of the mm-hmm. night. And that's what his daughter finds. And also, it shouldn't just be like she accidentally pricks her finger on it. That makes no sense at all. It should be like, you know, she's just curious and she's brainwashed by the videos and stuff mm. and somehow hacks into it or something. Um, but, uh, yeah, also, I don't know. Who who built the hatch? Who <laughs> built the secret hatch? I would like <laughs> to know. But you guys, I, I just have to say, you want to know the least realistic thing about the whole show? is that Laura wears three-inch heels in the house. <laughs> what the hell? I could not stop noticing this. Like, I can barely accept that she's just lounging around in the house in her 
tight, cute little dresses. But then she goes, the scene where the mum comes to visit her and she answers the door in three inch heels and the mum arrives in three inch heels. And I'm like, what? Most women don't even wear those to go clubbing, let alone to work, let alone to just chill in the house. Well, they've probably genetically engineered their calves to like need that or something. <laughs> but they didn't genetically engineer feminism so that no one feels obliged to right, wear right. three inch heels. Um, but actually, joking aside, the other thing, um, I think it stuck out to me a bit because, um, as I said before, because it, you know, the sour notes, you hear them all the more if, if the rest of the choir is performing admirably. The one for me is I thought that the depiction of the red light district was very Western and not very realistic. And I kept wondering, like, it was just, it struck me as a very sort of European, unimaginative version, a very uh, total recall version of what a red light district in a, in a failed state would look like. And I kept wondering, who's running the lights? <laughs> and if they have a generator, where are they getting the fuel? <laughs> like, mm-hmm. who's, or is there some poor schmuck on a bike? Which, if there is, I want to see it. Um, I felt a little better when they had the scene where all the lights went out in the club, but but even so, I really that just didn't look like any red zone, red light district in any war zone I've ever been to. Yeah, that's fair. I felt it felt very. It was one of those things that felt like we were talking about, like sort of off the shelf. Like, okay, well, here's just the generic sort of imagination of what like a you know kind of intense looking club would look like. Um, I liked it because of like sort of some of the character moments that happen in there. But yeah, I mean, as yeah. a piece of like world building, it's not that great. I mean, one question I had about that is in Laura's flashback, there are police that Julian um, mm-hmm. beats up for information. Mm-hmm. And I thought there were no police at all. Mm-hmm. So, like, were, were there police 10 years prior and they were, like, the last of the police? Or I don't know if anyone mm-hmm. followed it, what was going on there. I didn't follow what was going on, and it was a good question. And until um, until the Battlestar Galactica warlord showed up... <laughs> Um, oh. I, I was like, this is a key missing feature because when there's a security vacuum, it's always filled by someone and it's not just filled like by small time thugs, like Theo's boss, it's filled by full on private army warlords. Um, so I was happy when that character showed up because that's like a central feature of, of what would happen. But yeah, it's a good question. Who are these quote unquote official? Are they being paid by, by a neighborhood group? Are they... You know, um, I had similar questions about the firemen. At least the firemen didn't, it, it was like back to 19th century models of firefighting where if you didn't pay, too bad for you. But, but you know, that was obviously a private company, I guess. So maybe these guys were a private company, but yet you're right, it, it wasn't sufficiently explained. Right, there is that. There is that like line about like yeah, like the the nine one one, and then like people come less and less. So I guess in my head it was sort of they, it had sort of receded in the back into the background, but hadn't gone away completely. But that it, it feels yeah, like what you see of the police in that kidnapping scene, it seems very inconsistent with what you hear in basically the rest of the show. Yeah. Um, and then I kind of wanted to talk about the cast for a second. Um, I really liked some cast members and, and, and didn't particularly connect with others. And it it makes me wonder um, whether some of, whether some of that played in, into the show being canceled. I never really got excited about the lead character. 
Mm. And I don't know if that was a characterization problem or a performance problem or what the issue was, but I just didn't like him for reasons. And I don't mean I didn't like him as a person because that was kind of, you know, his, his ethical dilemmas were intentional and they were interesting. Um, but I just, I just didn't like him. And I also, I just can't deal with Dennis Haysbert. <laughs> <laughs> and not just because he's the Allstate guy. I haven't been able to deal with him since the first season of 24. Mm. The Allstate thing did bother me, though. Like, I, I kept, it kept distracting <laughs> me. <laughs> he's got a very distinctive voice. Yeah. And, and he just kind of reminds me of someone's dad, which is great. But he and he has gravitas and that's also great but i just don't buy him in this role at all mm. and yeah well, well well let me talk about the role so so dennis haysbert is is julian the head of the security for the speaker corporation that ben works for and i think this is one big problem i had with the show with just the premise of the show is that if this guy from the refugee camp has assumed a fake identity and infiltrated this corporation and then married the boss's daughter. <laughs> and the security guy hasn't figured this out. It makes the chief of security seem like he's not very good at his job. Right? right. Like I could totally believe like the other guy, Henry, if if he's just like he's got some low level position and he's keeping his head down, um, that he could maybe um escape detection. But like when you're b- marrying the boss's daughter, like what kind of you would think they have would have just like crazy background checks and stuff for all mm-hmm. that. Well, and that's interesting because they do make uh, a big deal in the show about how the fact that that the main character is angling for this promotion. Um, and the reason he wants to get this promotion is because it's only with access to the 40th floor um, and senior management that he will be provided access to the uh, entirely implausible executive club. Um, and... So, you know, this is a key priority for him is, is to get this promotion. And they make a, a big deal out of the fact that um, when you reach this tier of senior management, the vetting process is, I kept expecting them to use the word extreme vetting, but they fell <laughs> just short of referring to extreme vetting. But it was extremely arduous vetting <laughs> process um, in order to to qualify for senior management. And I understand that. But as you say, that that then begs the question, why would it be less extreme to vet the potential future son-in-law of the CEO of the corporation? Mm. Well, yeah, and particularly when they've established that they, they understand that family members are huge security risks. Mm-hmm. Mm. Uh, yeah, you know, I, um, I, I kind of wondered, speaking of the extreme vetting, I, I kind of wondered if part of the reason that the show wasn't able to find its audience is partially due to the election. Like, if Hillary had won, maybe people <laughs> would be more open Happy. to the idea of indulging in a little uh, dystopian fantasy right now, you know, whereas, like, now with uh, the current situation, maybe people are too much like, yeah, 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 it hits a little too close to home. You know, know? (laughs) honestly, maybe, maybe that had something to do with it. But honestly, I feel like a lot of, a lot of good content is falling by the wayside. And it it sort of is linked to this broader phenomenon. Um, I read a really good uh, special report in The Economist a couple of weeks ago about this, about how essentially the quote unquote democratization of the entertainment industry and the fact that there is this glut of content is really wonderful from the point of view of the consumer, but it essentially means that there's so much clutter in the space competing for the attention of the consumer 
that, you know, the sort of marginal probability of any specific property uh, of succeeding is really, really low unless it's connected to a huge brand, which is why we see even more of these. I mean, the, the special work report was called winner takes all. And it is a bit like that, I think. Um, and particularly when our viewing choices are guided by algorithms. So, you know, when you go on Netflix, Netflix is going to curate for you for better or worse. If you liked this, then you might also like that. Uh, if you go to Amazon, it's going to curate to the bane of the existence of authors like me. Uh, it's, mm -hmm. going to, it's going to curate the recommendations. And so I guess a lot of these, there's, there's more wonderful television out there right now than there has ever been before. But the, the dark side of that is that some of this great content is just not going to be able to, to elbow its way on, you know, onto people's screens. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah. And like in this case too, I feel like the show was doomed from the start. I mean, they canceled it within a month of the finale airing. It's like, that's no time at all for the, for the show to find its audience. I mean, maybe the, I mean, I don't know what the ratings were like. Maybe they were just completely abysmal, but I mean, honestly, like, because what you're saying, it's like, it's such, there's so much out there to watch right now that it's like, it's so much harder for, for any kind of new show that isn't tied to any existing property to find an audience. It's like, I mean, to cancel it within a month, that's ridiculous. Like, I mean, it's, it's like they didn't even try. It's like, why did they even bother to air it if they're not going to try any harder than that? You know, it's like, you know, e even us, we're, you know, hardcore genre geeks and, and we didn't get around to watching it until, um, you know, after the fact. And yeah, so it's just kind of, it's kind of distressing that, that something that, that was this well done could have gotten basically very little shot. And, and, I, I mean, not only did I not watch it, I'd actually never heard of it. And I would be curious what you guys think. For me, I mean, The Expanse is attached to an existing product. It's attached to a known novel series. I think this show is way more interesting than The Expanse. Um, what do you guys think? I disagree with that. <laughs> okay. Well, because The Expanse is your favorite show, right, Dave? Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> but it's really boring, Dave. <laughs> that's because you don't like science fiction if you liked science fiction oh, like a normal person then you would like it rapidly going off I the don't, rails you know why I don't like science fiction like The Expanse is because it's all about the concept and it's not about the characters and it drives me bananas I don't like mm. it I don't know about right, that well, I mean no, all right, well, let's... again painting in broad strokes but this was yeah. my issue with The Expanse is is it, it had a lot of characters I, and qualifier I've only seen season one, but I don't feel compelled to jump to season two in part because I didn't really feel invested in anyone. All right. Well, this is the incorporated panel, not the oh, like right. sitting on the expanse panel. So, <laughs> well, and, and hardly anyone's watching the expanse too. So, oh really? <laughs> yeah. Mm. But I got a second season. Um, I do think like there is something also just about the like the show. I mean, I think that that I think John and and Aaron are both right in that like. You know, that, that, in as much as I'd heard about the show, it sort of seemed like, oh man, this seems like a downer, which I, like, it's like, you know, I don't really want to watch right now. And then you watch it and you realize it's actually like a lot of fun and like very plotty and, and soapy in some ways. And, and so doesn't feel like, like homework. Um, but I, I do also feel like, yeah, and just in terms of how, it, like every, the little that I'd heard about it before, um, it, it didn't, there was nothing that, about the concept that made you say, oh, okay, like I have to go see this. Like, oh, this, Sounds like a pretty good show. There's lots mm. of pretty good shows. I don't know why I would prioritize this one unless I was going to go talk about it on a podcast. Yeah. <laughs> well, and I think this show suffered too from the first couple episodes seeming so familiar. I mean, I thought that mm. I, I thought that this show got more interesting as it went along. And by the last 
you know, four or five episodes, I was really into it. But I could see, I mean, I think most people never even heard of it. So I don't think it, it actually had anything to do with the content for why it failed. But yeah. mm -hmm. I think to the extent that it did, it was probably that, you know, people watched the first couple episodes and were like, ah, I've seen this before, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think, um, I think that they didn't do them, that they didn't do themselves any favors calling it incorporated. I mean, like that, that makes sense as a title for the show, but it's just that like, I don't know that it, it like sounds interesting. Like if you don't, mm. if you're, if you're not, like, if you didn't know what it was, if you hadn't heard of it and you just saw the title, like you, that wouldn't intrigue you to make you want to go watch it probably because it's like oh i just got off work i don't want to watch something about an incorporation you know? <laughs> um you know and uh so yeah i mean i, I mean I, I don't know what i would have called it but i mean that that i wonder if that was an issue uh, and, and i mean if you sort of contrast that with the episode titles some of the episode titles have like these really cool like convoluted uh business terms that sound really creepy in the context of the show and it's like i don't know that they would have worked as titles of uh for, for the series but i mean but but there probably was something they could have used. Like, I mean, for instance, Richard Morgan's novel was called Market Forces. Like, that sounds kind of interesting. That sounds more interesting than maybe Incorporated, um, even though it is just a business term, you know? Right. So, but um, there's more wit to it and, like, a sense yeah. of, like, that it's not just, like, an expose or documentary or something. Right, right. It's an interesting point. And also, if I just think about if you're sitting on the subway at Union Square staring out the window, what's going to catch your eye? Um, the title wouldn't catch my eye, but also neither would the poster or it, image or cover or whatever you want to call it. Um, it, it, it doesn't really say anything. So it, it's not particularly intriguing either. Um, and I do wonder, yeah, if some of that had to do with it. Um, and it's, and it's a shame too, because there, there were, I mean, there were, aside from the plot, there, there were a lot of interesting, character dynamics. And one of the ones that, that I think they did a good job of exploring, and I would have liked to see even more of was the relationship between Ben and his wife. Because, you know, one of the central things that, that Ben has to do in order to insinuate himself into the corporation, um, he, he ends up marrying, as we've said, the, the daughter of the CEO. And the daughter of the CEO is, is a very um, sympathetic character. You like her, you root for her, um, and she's being lied to and she's being lied to all the time and they don't really pull any punches about this. There are a lot of scenes that sort of make clear that Ben, who is the ostensible hero of the show, is really being just absolutely horrible in the way that he's using his wife, um, right down to taking birth control, um, in secret, even though she thinks that they're trying to have a baby together, which is a big deal because you need to have permission to have a baby in this, in this environment. Um, and I couldn't figure out whether he loved her or not. He seemed mm. to, and I, and I think maybe he couldn't even figure out whether he loved her or not. And that was really interesting. Um, and I thought they did a good job of, you know, spending time on that. Well, well so let's talk about Ben being a terrible person because <laughs> you, um, Aaron said she didn't like the total recall twist toward the end. I actually loved it. Because oh. I thought that was so interesting when that happens. And then Henry is like, I don't want Aaron back. That guy's <laughs> a dick. He's going to get us all killed, you know? Yeah. And the, the, the aspect of, um, Ben investigating himself and helping the corporation to catch himself without knowing it. Yeah. I thought all that stuff was pretty cool. Um, so I don't know, Anthony, which, what, what'd you think yeah. would come down on this one? Yeah, I agree. I mean, I, I felt like, I mean, I didn't, I didn't think that, I think maybe it went on for a little longer than it needed to. Um, but that at the same time, um, I mean, there, there was also one of those moments where they, I think I felt like the show was like sort of 
keeping up or, or ahead of the viewer because you immediately think like, wait, this, this other character is not going to want Ben back at all. And then of course you see that, that he doesn't want Ben back at all. And then you see that Ben also anticipated his hesitation and put all these mm-hmm. fail-safes in place. And, and so that stuff I, I, I really liked. I don't know that it needed to be, I think it sort of stretched out almost over like two episodes or something like that. But, but overall I thought that was, that was a really fun subplot. It also, I mean, yeah, because it is like you, at this point you are getting pretty sick of, um, of Ben, so like, or like, you know, you're. I mean, I, I mean, I, I don't. I think they don't really pull the punches even from the start about how ba- like bad some of his decisions are. Um, and um, but but like, I think that's like you know that 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 people say to him at that point, sort of what I think you as a viewer are are thinking, and and so I think that for that reason, it was also pretty effective. Yeah, and I th- I think it was a really interesting choice for them to make Laura such a cool character. I feel like a lot of TV shows would make her kind of you know annoying or. Or something, but you know, I, I really, really liked her as a character, and and that's what's good about it because it would be so easy not to make her likable character, and that would be mm-hmm. cheating in some ways, yeah. like letting yourself off easy, right? And and to, and Aaron, you were saying that you know you, you can't you you're not sure if, if Ben loves her, and he he probably isn't sure himself, and that I think is definitely one of the things that. Um, makes you know i think that's definitely the most interesting relationship in the in the show and 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 you know thankfully we did get a, f- a fair amount of that um and and so uh yeah no i mean i mean uh, that that was all great we did i i really liked henry and i'm gonna miss him although i couldn't <laughs> stop thinking of him as dewey crow does anyone else watch justified did anyone else watch Justified? no no oh man you should watch justified if only to see the mullet <laughs> that guy is rocking in the show <laughs> he is this total dirtbag rural southern mullet rocking shotgun toting it's amazing anyway <laughs> Uh, I was going to say about uh, Ben and his wife. Uh, yeah, I thought it was interesting. Uh, you know, just this conversation talking about like whether or not he loves her. Um, you know, because I think we do see that at least part of him definitely does because when he has the part, the Aaron part of himself removed temporarily, Ben clearly does love his wife. And so I thought that was kind of interesting because it got to, it, it was able, they were able to basically externalize that emotional conflict for us temporarily. Um, uh, because when you remove that part of him that is conflicted, then we see like, oh, well, yeah, no, he definitely does love her. It's just that, you know, there's this other asshole living in his head that, that screws <laughs> it all up for him. Um, but I also wanted to just quickly uh, stick up for the actor that plays uh, Ben slash Aaron. I, I actually really liked them. I thought he was great. I mean, like, I, I was, like, actually, like, wow, who is this guy? Like, I never seen, like, never saw him before. Um, I mean, that probably didn't help, um, though, with the with the show struggling to find an audience is that he was an unknown. Um, or at least he was unknown to me. I've never seen him before. Mm. Um, you know, if they if they had been able to find somebody uh, who was more, you know, notable that, that could have drawn an audience because of that, that, I mean... You know, obviously, uh, easier said than done, but, um, yeah. But I mean, I really liked him. I, I, I would gladly see him cast, cast in other things. For some reason, when you were talking about that, and I was wondering, I guess it made me think about the budget of, of getting somebody more known. And it made me wonder whether the budget of the show was a factor because, I mean, I do think that, um, some of the some of the refugee camp scenes and some of the red zone scenes, I don't know, uh, where the show was shot. But it does make me think that there would be at least a little bit more than a little bit of expense in uh, in establishing all of that all of that stuff, which looked very Vancouver to me for some reason. But all that suburbia stuff in the green zone, not so much. But but maybe I don't know. Maybe there were, were budgetary issues as well in relation to the viewership. 
Yeah, I, I, by the way, that also just reminded me of that scene when you first see that sort of wide shot of like one of the camps and you just see the planes and just surrounded by sort of the camp all around it. I, I thought that was just like beautiful. That was amazing. And and really to, to go back to the aid worker thing, like really you that that bubble phenomenon, the more and, and you hear you hear people on the left talk about it a lot, in my opinion, with good reason about the issue of rising inequality and however it comes about. And things like climate change and disasters and, and, and conflict do exacerbate all of that. But however, the, the widening gap between rich and poor comes about, the, the, the bubble concept is our future, unless we change something quite radical right now. The, the urban slums versus the, the green zones is not, it's not 100 years down the road, even without a major upheaval. This is, this is 50 years down the road. And it's, it, I mean, it's not down the road at all in much of the world. It's, mm. it's right now. It's right now in Nairobi. It's right now in Johannesburg, let alone in Kabul or Kinshasa. What did you think, Aaron, about the ad where it was like, help starving American kids? Uh. You know, okay. So I had an issue with it. I thought it was really well done, but it was a bit meta for me. Like it, it just seemed a little bit to um what's the word i'm looking for a little bit too like sneering in a way it, it was a it did it did a good job of of replicating um a, a not-for-profit ad so it, it it was a it was a good job in that way but I, I i asked a lot of questions like why is china still okay and just the sort of concept of uh you know some part of the rest of the world is is still totally fine, but but we Americans are. It just felt preachy, as I guess. It that felt preachy to me. Like I just I, I would have liked to hear more about how the rest of the world was faring because, and again, like there's still a euro. I had sort of understood from the early episodes that the whole world was affected by this, which would only make sense, right? So why do rising sea levels in in China and droughts in China? Um, not affect their governance and and their their state the way it does in, in the U.S. Do you see what I mean? Well, maybe maybe they uh, maybe their leader actually paid attention and took climate change seriously, whereas uh, the America elected someone who didn't believe in climate change, for instance. Wait, just wait, to- wait, <laughs> in the future. Wait, wait, wait. In the future. Wait, the, wait, the Chinese <laughs> took climate change seriously. Well, I mean, in I'm not saying far, that far? it's. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> I thought they were like really investing in solar power and stuff like that. I mean, you would know better than I do, but that's what I thought I'd seen. Uh, there's a lot of coal. Look, I'm not trying to call China out particularly. I'm just saying a lot would have to change before I would buy mm-hmm. that lease because China also has massive. Uh, I mean, look, China does not have it's 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 does not have the robust institutions that the United States has. It has very fragile climate areas. It has entire zones of the West and the North that are not. Anyway, so I don't want to go too far down, but that, but that are not a, a, a part of the polity in the way that, anyway. Or, or maybe the borders of China would have changed. Who knows? Like the China of that, of that era is not the same as, as the China of our era, which is perfectly possible. All right. Well, what did you guys think of the idea of genetically engineering plants to be able to be mm-hmm. watered with salt water? I thought that was pretty freaking cool. I have no idea if that's even remotely realistic or not but i thought that was a really interesting idea 
Yeah, yeah, that actually kind of blew my mind. I was like, oh, wow. Like, what? Like, I never even thought of that. Like, how have I never seen that in a science fiction before, in science fiction story before? I mean, maybe, maybe it is just unrealistic and that's why, but, um, you know, I mean, I thought that was like really interesting though. I had the opposite reaction. I thought it was good, but I, I pretty much, if I was a betting woman, I'd put large sums on the fact that Monsanto's looking into it pretty aggressively (laughs) right now. I, that, that to me sounded like a given. Well, yeah, it felt like one of those things that I think you're talking about, Aaron, where it was like, it was smart, and it did, but it didn't feel like a leap. You're just like, oh, yeah, no, no, yeah, of course, that's that's where you would put a lot of, that's where you'd want to put your research. So it was like, I definitely didn't think about it until they said it, but then it's like, I think then as soon as they said it, like, I, my mental map sort of rearranged, like, oh, yeah, of course, that, that, that makes sense that, that that would be a thing they would be competing over. Yeah, totally. And I guess that's the sign of good world building. That it does, like, it it sparks something but it just it feels right also right it's it's almost feels inevitable but even though it totally isn't yeah well like another thing like that to me was the little like app where you can choose what your kids look like by pulling like (laughs) dragging features from the mom and the dad i mean that's felt totally inevitable to me too yeah more more right from the gattaca playbook but there was no app in gattaca that's the well (laughs) (laughs) it's all about the app it's really the well, but they didn't. They didn't. They didn't have a uh, charming ass Blair Underwood to talk them through the process. So you know, you <laughs> you know, I'd rather have that than an app. I think he's a charming man. <laughs> I did want to say about the the cast. By the way, was also yeah that like I mean that like there was you know like some some big ish names in this pointy cast, but then like guy from um, Battlestar Galactica for three episodes and and um, guy from Hannibal for like one episode. It just it was like a lot of like familiar faces from genre shows, which was a little distracting, but they all like did a pretty good job. So I, I didn't mind it too much. This is what makes one of the things that makes me wonder if it was shot in Vancouver, because pretty much everything uh. that's ever shot in Vancouver has Battlestar Galactica guy in it at some point. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought he was good. I actually thought that character was like pretty interesting. I mean, it was one of those things where, you know, I don't think they got to develop him as much as, as I would have liked. But when he was on screen and, and what the, the conflict that we saw, I thought was all good. The second that guy showed up, like literally the second that guy showed up on screen, my girlfriend says he and Laura are going to hook up. <laughs> wow. Well, it, OK, speaking of that guy, what the relationship between him and Julian is puzzling. Like, okay, they serve together in the water wars or the whatever, <laughs> whatever war. Um, and, and I kind of get that, but they, they still have some sort of relationship. And Julian, who is pitched as, he kind of reminds me of the operative in some ways it, from, from Firefly. Like he doesn't really, from, from Serenity, he doesn't, he doesn't relish what he's doing, but he believes it's necessary. Um, or at least he seems to. But I didn't really understand why he would still have truck with this warlord. It didn't make a lot of sense to me. Or why he would go to him for advice or as someone he trusted. Because uh, on the face of it, that guy did not come across as... I don't remember his name. But he did not come across as somebody that anyone sensible would trust. That's interesting because I felt like I would definitely trust, uh, I, I, we should definitely figure out what his name is, Battlestar Galactica guy <laughs> over uh, Elizabeth Krauss, the Julia or- Ormond character. If anything, I, I was more like, why is like Julian so loyal to this woman who like the time when he like asked her for something, her, she is so transparent that she has no interest in helping him out. But are um, his only choices? A warlord <laughs> or the ruthless CEO of Spiga? That's, Does he not have that's, any friends? That's what... That's what happens in dystopia. That's that's just how it works. 
Well, he was trying to get a transfer, so, you know, he probably stopped trying to cultivate contacts locally. You know, that was his problem. Oh, by the way, as a Canadian, I had a really good giggle about the, uh, I can't remember exactly the context it came up in, but where somebody wanted to flee to Winnipeg. Oh, that was hilarious. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Wasn't there a wall? There's a, there's a wall on the Canadian border. Yeah. Yes, of right. course. Uh, there's a lot of walls on the Canadian border in future movies these days. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, more seriously, I would say one thing that, that is slightly believable about that, the fact that he doesn't seem to have any, that the Julian head of security character doesn't seem to have any friends, is, I mean, they do emphasize this idea that your entire social world is the corporation, but everyone in the corporation kind of keeps him at arm's length because of what because he, he does. people. Right. So, like, it, you know, in that sense, it, it makes sense that he couldn't go to anyone, you know, he didn't have any close friends. Yeah. Uh, actually, speaking, speaking of the social world, uh, one, one bright spot in this dystopia is that it seems like social media was dead. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody was rating one another. Yeah. <laughs> I'm still scarred by that episode of Black Mirror, which is the only right. episode of Black Mirror I've seen. But it just, I mean, if you're in the entertainment industry at all and your life is regulated by how many stars you get, it's very upsetting. Right, it's right. very upsetting. Yeah, no, totally. <laughs> oh, I was just going to say, I mean, just uh, before we get too far off, Julian, um, I was going to say, Dave, like, how much did you want that quiet room just for podcasting? <laughs> <laughs> I loved that it was called The Quiet Room. I loved that it had that completely pablum, unthreatening name. In view of the completely horrible things that happen in it. Which made it feel more threatening in some ways. Yeah. Exactly. Which is great. I, and you knew as soon as you saw it with all that soundproofing, you're like, oh, this can't be good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I want it for podcasting and I want to put people who make noise when I'm trying to record in it. <laughs> a little dual use space. All right. But, but so I want to pitch you guys on my rewrite for this show. Mm-hmm. All right. So, and which I th I think this addresses all my problems because I don't like the whole rescuing Elena thing. I would just ditch that. And like I said, I don't believe that this guy could rise this high in this organization given his past without any without them finding out. So, what I think it should be is I think there should be the two characters. There's one who is like the the you know who works for the company and he's decided that he doesn't want to serve the company's interest anymore. He wants to try to save the world. And he enlists the aid of this other guy who works at the company, who's the guy from the refugee camp who has taken some low-level position and is hiding in plain view. And so the guy in the, the corporate guy finds this out and he needs the um, refugee guy's computer skills. So he starts blackmailing him. Like, you need to help me or else I'm going to reveal your identity. And then I just think because I think that like like we like I think John mentioned the the scene where um, Elizabeth, the CEO, has to de decide whether or not to kill the scientist or let him potentially fall into the hands of their rival. I think the whole show should be scenes like that. Mm -hmm. The whole show, to my mind, should be scenes of you want to do the right thing. Like like basically, how much do you compromise in order to keep rising in this? organization so that you can eventually do the right thing mm -hmm. and when you know when do you you know wh when have you gotten high enough in the organization that you can start doing right the right thing and how many how much how many compromises do you make along the way that's what i think this show should have been 
I think that would have been great. And also not just how many compromises, ethical compromises are you prepared to make to rise in the organization, but take the ends justifies the means argument even further. And what short term sacrifices on a more in the broader sense are you prepared to make? So for example, if somehow bombing the, that research, even though for the next five years, uh, 5 million people will starve, you know that by doing that, in 20 years time, there'll be research that that uh, that saves twice as many people or 10 times as many people or whatever it is. Um, and, and the really thorny ones, like the 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 scene where where Laura is operating in her clinic in the red zone, and she finds what she thinks is this kid. Um, and he's he's going to die because this implant he has has burst. Um, and when she she saves him, she's explaining to him very happily that she saved his life from this implant. And he says, well, you've got to put that implant back in because actually I'm 19 years old um, and that implant keeps me a kid so that tricks will pay 10 times more to, to have sex with a child. And she's she's appalled and she doesn't know what to do. And he basically says, if you don't put this back in me, not only do I not eat, but my parents don't eat, my siblings don't eat, my cousins don't eat, and on and on. Those kinds of ethical dilemmas are very, very real, and they're really compelling. And I think that would have been, I would have liked to see more of it. Yeah, you know, I think either either with Dave's rewrite or with the original, like if the show had continued on for several seasons, I, I think it would have been cool if, uh, in, in proper dystopian fashion, if um, the protagonist had eventually... Uh, achieved his goals and or like risen all the way to the top of the organization uh, through all of this nefarious means. But by the time he got to that point, he had uh, so eroded away all of the good parts of him that once he gets to that top position that he no longer wants to actually do the good that he started off trying to, you know, trying to do in the first place um, so that, you know, you could sort of build up up to this uh this climax of uh just despair like uh, kind of like a almost like the same um arc as like breaking bad where you know you have a character you know trying to do doing all these bad things in order to try to achieve this one goal but then just starts doing it because he enjoys it and or it's easier or you know all these various uh nefarious reasons I think one thing I would say, I mean, I, I like the rewrite, um, it, but as a sort of a half-hearted defense of, like, the Rescue Elena storyline is I think that they did, that was part of what they wanted to get at with that storyline was this idea that, okay, well, obviously rescuing this person who's, like, you know, been sort of, you know, like, been trapped in sex work is, like, a worthwhile thing, and then he sort of uses that to sort of justify everything that he does, um, but I think part of the problem is that, I mean, it, the things he does, like, sort of outweigh <laughs> any good he does, like, very, very early on. And um, and the, the, there's not a lot of dramatic tension in the sense that he, that for Bet, I mean, it's, you know exactly what he's going to choose. He's always going to choose her each time. And so there, there's no, like, to any of these sort of scenes, like, you're like, well, I, I know he's, what he's going to do. Yeah. And, and aside from the fact that, as I mentioned, I, I find that, I find the the fact of of the executive club makes perfect sense, but the fact that the executive club is as over the top as it is, <laughs> um, I, I didn't find terribly compelling. But but this this concept of like from if I think about it from sort of stripping it down to the essentials of storytelling, um, I agree with you that um, on I, I think in general you want to give your your character a personal stake, and it's actually it should be more compelling that he has a personal reason, a simple personal reason why he's doing this as opposed to world saving. 
The problem is that the simple personal reason that they chose, I think, isn't a very good one. And the simple personal reason is out of all proportion to the sacrifices that he makes and the ethical choices that he makes. So it would have been good if you could somehow blend Dave's rewrite with the original concept of of giving the character a personal stake, um, a reason why why these these objectives are important without it becoming so cliche damsel in distress. I would agree with that. Yeah, I kind of wondered if, uh, I mean, they kind of showed some signs of it, but I wondered if Elena actually had her own sort of scheme in place. Like, uh, there, we see some of it with her talking to that woman who's like sort of like, uh, her, her companion or her, um, like she's, no, sort she's of like her Inazagi her handler. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, well, not Inazagi, it's, it's, um, Spiga. It's Spiga, right? Yeah. Oh, was right, she Spiga? So, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, um, you know, the handler, right? Yeah. So it's like, it seems like there's some sort of uh, plotting going on between those two. And so like, I, I thought it would have been interesting if when Ben actually first meets her, meets up with her that it's like, well, she doesn't want to go with him because she's already got her own plan. And, and her plan is to like take down the whole company or, or whatever, like, you know, whatever, whatever her motivations are um, instead of having the, the, the sort of, you know, rescue plotline. I think that's where they were probably trying to go. I, yeah. I personally interpreted the handler as being neither Spiga nor Inazagi, but actually some sort of um, resistance movement. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I suspect that if the show had been allowed to run its course, that perhaps Ben would have migrated into a more altruistic via Elena into mm-hmm. a more altruistic uh, cr- crusade so he starts trying to rescue the girl and the girl is like, well, don't bother rescuing me because, you know, this this is mm-hmm. a, a drop in the bucket. There's this this bigger picture and he gets recruited to this bigger cause that may have been what they had in mind. Yeah, I, I, that feels right. Yeah. I mean, that certainly would have been good, uh, a good direction for it to go in. Yeah, and I'm also curious what would have happened in season two with Laura, because it seemed like she was heading in the direction, like a Breaking Bad direction, where in order to keep her clinic running, she's going to need to become more and more of a crime boss mm-hmm. type figure um that could have been interesting too so i was thinking um and you know since since it's already been announced that it's canceled and, and it's like okay well i mean i i i can't delude myself into thinking that that appearance on geek's guide is going to suddenly uh <laughs> increase the the viewership of this show so much that the network will change its mind but um i was thinking about how um i can't remember what show it was but there was some show years ago where they sent peanuts to the studio in order to to make them like reconsider canceling a show or something peanuts um, like actual peanuts yeah something like that or, <laughs> like maybe i'm misremembering but there was something like that you know and so so people sent all the sent 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 the stuff to the to the studio and 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 they got them to reconsider uh canceling a show or something it's like so for this one i guess we could just send them bacon i don't know um, <laughs> or giant steaks yeah yeah the bacon would probably be more affordable at least a tomato a nice juicy looking tomato that you can eat with a knife and fork <laughs> yeah right yeah there you go but yeah i mean i think the 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 takeaway there is that, you know, they're not kidding around with canceling these shows. I mean, even pretty good shows like this can yeah. get canceled. And so I, I want everyone to support really amazingly good shows like The Expanse because, <laughs> uh, you know, man, I will just be distraught if yeah. anything happened to that show because it's so, – let me emphasize this again – so good. Yeah. Well, All I mean, right. like, I appreciate – 
like I appreciate at least that like I we started seeing some articles that were saying like hey the expanse doesn't have as much viewership as the network was hoping for so that at least we have some warning that's like oh hey we need to rally behind this show and try to do something about it but I mean it's like incorporated I guess it's just like since nobody even knew it was there um you know they weren't able to really do anything like that but um yeah it's just uh I feel like it's um you know you have something like the sci-fi channel and a show like this. It's like, I mean, that's a pretty niche audience to start with. Like, that's going to be your inherent fan base. And it's like, yeah, like, you know, you know, nobody ever reaches out to us or anything. Nobody, like, you know, nobody tries to get any coverage in any of the places that geeks are likely to find out about this show. Like, I mean, like, I pay attention to a lot of media, like, covering, you know, movies and TV shows and stuff. And it's like, I never heard anybody. I never saw anybody talking about Incorporated. No, so it's like. Clearly, they put no marketing budget behind it because yeah. it's that again that throw it against the wall and see what sticks mm-hmm. mark uh, model of, of of marketing entertainment, which makes some sense from from the from the network's point of view. But I but I think you know the the takeaway here for for people who really enjoyed this show or really enjoyed Brain Dead or any of these other things that are getting canceled, um, but. You know, it's to like to dig deeper in making your entertainment choices than whatever pops up at the top of your algorithm mm-hmm. to actually, yeah. you know, ask around and sort of look for look for reviews and look for I mean, lots of people do that. Lots and lots of people do that, um, particularly in our community. But most people don't. They they sort yeah. of they're very lazy about and fair enough. We all have busy lives. Very lazy about their entertainment choices being curated for them. And as a result, it's just a drift to the middle. It's particularly odd, actually, how little media attention this got, given that Matt Damon and Ben Affleck mm-hmm. were producers. You would think they could have, like, appeared on this podcast to they talk about. They could have boosted the signal. Yeah. You think you think they could you think they could have mentioned it at the Oscars or something? I mean, come on, guys. <laughs> um, but yeah, you know, uh, I mean. I feel like it's putting a, I, I now feel all this pressure, like when a new show comes on, I better watch that thing right away. Because if, if we're going to get on board and try to help the show succeed, we got to do it like right from the start. Because I mean, this, this show was so new when it got canceled. It's like it barely had a chance. But it's true, John. Um, I mean, the, the tendency, and we all do it, and God knows I do it, uh, to binge watch or binge read. Yeah. Is, is actually it's another one because if you're not if you're not selling it book by book if you're not racking up the ratings episode by episode then that that latent audience that wants to wait for the whole season to be finished or wait for the whole series to be finished before they start putting money in the network is never going to pick that up yeah and it's going to get canceled so watch in real time get your PDR yeah. going folks <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so Dave, I mean, we gotta we gotta jump on these uh, new show uh, review episodes rather than uh, doing any kind of retrospective season <laughs> episode because we might not have a second season if we keep doing this. Yeah, it's all yeah. your fault, Cause Dave. Because we... <laughs> <laughs> because we can swing. I think we can swing it. I mean, that would be yeah. so amazing if you know, just some someday, some really great show is just like. You know, we would have been canceled after one season if not for the Geeks Guide to the Galaxy <laughs> podcast. They made all the difference. Yeah, well, you should cover Taboo, because I'm not sure they're picking up Season 2. And that would be oh, a I think, shame. I think they actually just announced that they are doing Season oh, 2. excellent. Love it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right, guys, so we are all out of time. Uh, any final thoughts? Anthony, you have any final thoughts you want to say? Yeah, I mean, I guess I, I agree about, like, you know, obviously I am, I am disappointed that, that they didn't have a second season. Um, 
But I mean, we, I, I do think like the, the flip side is that is that they did get to tell, you know, a complete, they did have a complete season. It wasn't like, you know, like, you know, 10, 15 years ago where shows just, you know, get cut off, like in the middle of the season, like something like Firefly or Wonderwall, where it's just like, you know, like it, where it's even more abrupt. And so I feel like at least they, they definitely did not get to tell the whole story. There were a lot of unanswered questions, but like, I feel, I still am glad that I watched it on its own. I still feel like there was an arc to Ben's story. There was an arc to, to Laura's story. And so the fact that they, you know, that they made 10 episodes of this, I mean, I wish they were making more, but, but I'm glad that there are these 10 episodes. Um, Aaron, final thought? My final thought is that I am going to leave you guys to go eat some bacon. This show has just really underscored our general appreciation of bacon. And if in the future it's going to be scarce and expensive, I think we should all eat more bacon. And whatever the WHO said about it before, you guys get your bacon in while you can. (laughs) All right, John, can you top that? Uh, I don't know if I can top that, but I mean, I just want to, I just want to stress that, like, you know, although we have been nitpicking a lot of things on, on the show, and like, we discussed the various problems with it, I mean, like, overall, like, I just, it's a, it's a really good show. It's really worth watching. And even if you sat through this episode and you've heard these spoilers and stuff, I think it's, like, really worthwhile because, I mean, there's, there's a lot of amazing vis- visuals. It's, it's really great seeing all of these things play out. Um, and, uh, I'm just really sad to see it go. Like, I, I just got, I really got wrapped up in the show and, um, I'm very disappointed that it, there's not going to be any more, but, um, yeah, like, like Anthony was saying, I think even, even though we only have the one season, I think it is worth watching for the one season that exists, um, even if, uh, it ended prematurely. Agreed. Yeah, I really can't say enough, again, just about how impressed I was by a lot of the world building in this show. And I just really hope other shows will take a look at this and, you know, take that example to heart and have world building this good and other science fiction shows going forward because it's it's just really well done. And uh, all right, so that'll be my final thought. And so I think we'll wrap things up there. So we've been speaking with John Joseph Adams, Anthony Ha, and Aaron Lindsay. So guys, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Yeah, good to be here. And that was our panel. So big thanks again to John Joseph Adams, Anthony Ha, and Aaron Lindsay for joining us on the show. Big thanks as well to everyone who's given us five stars on iTunes, including C. Svetkoff, Lamott Skiddly Boom Boom, and App Reviews by MH in the U.S., and Connell McGarrigal in Ireland. Connell writes, If all interviewers were as good at their job as David Barr Kirtley, we'd all know far more about everything. Never have I heard a better researched presenter with genuine interest in his guests. He is not in love with the sound of his own voice. He listens and lets the guest speak. When he does speak, it is to ask an interesting and informed question. My favorite interviews have been ones that have delved into the craft of writing, but I have yet to be disappointed by any episode. The only drawback to listening to Geek's Guide is the sheer volume of books and samples of books I have downloaded to my Kindle as a result of great recommendations from the show. I may not get to read them all, but the ones that I have read were excellent. The show is so good I have opted to pay $1 per episode through Patreon, as I would hate to see it come to an end. Keep up the good work, guys. So big thanks again to Connell McGarrigal for that great review and for supporting us on Patreon. I also want to give a special thank you to Greg Reynolds, who also just signed up this week to support us on Patreon. Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com crowdfunding. 
So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. So thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.